0: This morning we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Over the last couple of weeks we have been introducing Revelation and we have talked about the fact that Revelation is more than just future tellings of events. It's more than just prophecy. It's more than apocalyptic language, but that Revelation is, is in fact a revelation to John to give to the churches it's a letter if you will it's a love it's a love letter in many ways it is a letter that shows it reveals god's wrath to unbelieving nations to unbelieving people but what his love has accomplished through his son on behalf of the church. How much does God love us? He loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. Bearing the wrath of God for the sake of our sin that we might not have to endure eternal punishment. Folks, if that's not love, I don't know what is. It's also a letter to the churches revealing God to us, who God really is. Honestly, there are very few parts of Scripture that are so explicit in revealing the glory of God. Revelation is just just filled with texts demonstrating the glory of God. Now, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a unique portion of Revelation. Revelation, and in fact, there are some individuals I think that probably feel like Revelation gets off to a little bit of a slow start because it starts out with these first like two or three chapters that provides an introduction, and then it goes through these like real specific cases to the churches, to these seven churches. And uh, but there's more there's more taking place there. Now I want to begin just by saying this: these letters to the churches, there's going to be seven of them. If you've never read Revelation or if you don't remember it. In starting in chapter 2, there are these statements. This, this letter, okay, Revelation is going out to everyone, okay? But there are seven little sort of like uh, discourses that are specific to local churches. Now, I just want to take just a couple minutes just to give you a little bit of background on what some people think about these churches, okay? Some These were real churches. But some individuals, some scholars believe that these churches, these discourses, were not really meant specifically for these seven churches, but they were meant to be sort of like just generic teachings for the church and use these seven churches as sort of like symbolic, if you will. Some individuals believe that the seven churches are symbolic to different ages of the church. So, like the church of Ephesus would have been right there around the time of Christ, and the church of Laodicea would be right now. Okay? What's funny is is that for the last 2,000 years, everybody who reads Revelation in their time believes that they're Laodicea. All right? Which, I I don't know, kind of makes me just a little bit smile just a little bit because it doesn't mean that we're overconfident in ourselves, right? We see our faults, okay? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that these seven discourses were meant specifically for these seven churches. They were the original audience. That, these, that this letter was going out to all of them, and that these seven churches were going to be seeing these seven discourses, and when they found their name, they would be kind of holding back, like, what's Jesus going to say to us? You know, is he going to have a commendation? And some of them, there was a commendation. We're going to see that, that there was, a, there was an approval for what they were doing. And then oftentimes there was a critique. You're doing this wrong. And then there is a, this is how you fix it. This is what you need to do to fix it. And then there's a reward. If you fix it, this is what's going to happen. That's sort of the pattern. Some churches didn't have a critique. Some churches didn't have a commendation. So I do believe that these are specific to these local churches, but I also believe that they have import for us, that we can take from these and we can both look at them from a church, a corporate body. How are we living in according to God's Word and in comparison to this? And also individually, do we fit the pattern of these discourses? All right. So that's how I'd like for us to look at it. I'd like for when we read about these different churches... I'd like for us to be introspective. How do we as a congregation, do, do, are the commendations that Christ was making about a specific church, do they fit us? Can, if, if it said gospel life in here, would, would, would it fit with the church of Ephesus or would it fit with the church of Laodicea? All right, Would it be Pergamum or Smyrna or Thyatira? Where, where would we fit? Would we be an amalgamation of these? Would it be a sort of combining these churches? We need to look at that. And then individually, where do we fit individually? See, we, need to look, we don't just think individually, we think corporately. So this morning, we're going to look at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a great place to start because you all know the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, right? Ephesians is a fantastic letter. It's one of my favorite letters in all of Scripture, and it's the letter that he wrote that has some of the most uh, stout and substantial theology, in there that talks about how we are uh, to relate to one another and how we are re- to relate to God. So that's where we're going to be this morning. I want to start off by reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to break right into this. The sermon title this morning is simply Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You, uh, sorry, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that as we read these words, that we can relate to the commendations, the strengths that you've uh, spoken of the church of Ephesus that we would be rich in theology that we would desire to know doctrine that we would be careful about about trusting any falsehood that we would be uh, that we would push back any false teaching that we would guard ourselves from that but father i pray that we would also be a church that would be loving loving towards you loving towards your son and loving towards our neighbor i pray that we would not prioritize one over the other lord but that we would desire to to uh, to be committed and dedicated and sold out to the cause of Christ. Be with us this morning as we read your word, as we study your word, and as we are edified by it. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Missing the forest for the trees. I don't know, many of you all have probably heard that phrase, missing the forest for the trees. And and what that means is, it's it's kind of this idea that you go out into the woods, and you're so you have such tunnel vision that you are that you are looking at individual trees, but you miss the beauty of the entire forest, right? That there's more there. That's the specific relationship, and we we use that idiom, that phrase, that that um, that concept for many things in life. It means that as we are going through life, we are so focused and intent on one thing that we, we miss all the other things. As parents, we do that with our kids sometimes. We're so focused on the one or two things that our kids do wrong that we miss all the wonderful things that our kids do right. Or as a spouse, sometimes we miss that. We are so, so focused on these one or two things that, are, that our spouse may not do exactly the way we want it, but we miss all the glorious things that they are doing for us or, that, or how they are enriching our lives. We may think about that with our job with school, so many different facets. It is often that we miss the forest for the trees. And that's what's going on with Ephesus this morning. So just as a way of introducing this to you, I want you to I want you to sort of uh, just focus in on this illustration that I've made up. This is not a this is not a real case. Uh, it might be a real case, but it's not anybody specific. So uh, guys specifically, I'm not talking about you, okay? Ladies, I'm not talking about your husbands this morning, okay? I did not have any of y'all in mind, okay? But if it makes you cringe, then, you know, I'm not going to say anything about it. Anyway, a husband wakes up at 5.30 in the morning. He shaves and showers. He puts on a pot of coffee for himself and his wife. He reads the morning paper. Yes, there were papers, young people, all right, alone at the table and drinks his coffee in silence. And when he's finished, he cleans his coffee cup, he places it back in the cabinet, and heads off to work. Now, right now, the women are swooning. He cleaned that coffee cup. He, put, he dried it, and he put it back. My wife is like, you are writing about my dream husband. Anyway, he often works long hours, but he does his job very well. He makes good money, and his wife doesn't have to work, They live in a nice neighborhood, and their kids, nor his wife, really want for nothing. I'm feeling really actually guilty right now. Okay, I'm sorry. All right. When he comes home, he sits down at the dinner table in silence. He eats the food that was left out for him because he was home late. He washes the dishes. He mows the yard. He takes out the trash, and then he fixes the drain in the master bathroom. He's a hero. He wears a cape. After the nightly news, he helps his two children finish their homework. He tells his wife goodnight, and then he heads off to bed, which is in a different room, in a different bed than his wife's. No goodnight kiss, no conversation, no anger, but no affection and no adoration. And the next morning, rinse and repeat. Now, it wasn't always like this. When they were first married, he was loving, affectionate, and intentional about how he loved his wife. Sure, his socks were sometimes laid out on the floor, and he didn't always help with the dishes, but the conversations were lively and the intimacy was always present. But then he was told, in fact, he read about it in a book, that in order to be the best husband possible, you needed to be the best provider always be responsible, always be organized, regimented, and serious. Yes, it may come off as cold, but you'll be the type of husband that all men should look up to. He had to be the kind of husband and father that ran a home and a life like a perfectly oiled factory, a cold but effective and efficient factory. He felt that he couldn't do both be loving and rigorous. Therefore, he chose to follow all the rules and leaving his wife's and his children's emotional needs at the door. Now, some of us, hopefully none of us, think of our spouse in that way. And some of us may even think, that is that, that's just like overboard, right? That's just like nobody's really like that, right? Because it does seem far-fetched, and I don't know many, if any, husbands, or wives, for that matter, that are like that. Now, sure, there are seasons when individuals have to focus, or they choose to focus, specifically on a task at hand. I know for me that when there is, around Easter time, I know that I, am, I got a heightened focus on Easter messages and all the all the things that come around there. I know around reporting time at work that I'm hyper-focused around there With the beginning of school, like right now, I'm hyper-focused on that, so I spend longer hours at work, work more at home and things like that. All right? So there are seasons where husbands and wives can be a little distant due to the strains of life, but very few are this calculating. Intending upon living a cold life just to make sure that you're following the rules. But I do see this in churches from time to time. Most often I see it in young men who desire to be so theologically or spiritually correct and validated that they become cold and calculating to their church, their neighbor, and the Lord. And you all may have met individuals like this. They are so concerned about following every theological rule and doctrine, making sure they are right at every turn, that they can win any argument, any theological argument, that they have left love and compassion at the door. It is more important to be theologically right than it is to be loving and compassionate. And some of these individuals will bulldoze people in order to get that done. Folks, I have seen that. I've seen it in churches, and I've seen it in seminary. And it happens a lot with young men who are training to be pastors. They're training to be individuals set to love and shepherd a flock of sheep. But they are so focused on the theology and the academics and all those sorts of things that they forget their first love. Sometimes I see that like Ephesus they have forgotten their first love they have forgotten the purpose and the do- of the purpose of doctrine and theology and collectively they run the risk of losing their place as a church that's what's happening here so that's what's going on with Ephesus okay so why did i bring all that up it's because of this Ephesus was commended for how committed they were to doing what was right doing what was moral doing what was biblical, and refraining, keeping out any type of theological hazard that might enter the church. But in doing so, they had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten of their love for Christ. They had forgotten about their love for their neighbor. They had neglected those things for the sake of these other things. And there's a massive critique of that. So how do churches and individuals guard themselves against such sin? And if they fall, how do they recover? So let's look at the strengths of Ephesus. It says, "...to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. First, I want to begin by making one thing very clear, okay? When we look across Scripture, we understand that the words and the thoughts inscribed are inspired by God, but utilize the author's words and voice and experience, okay? Words in Scripture are rarely dictated, but here they are. These are coming directly from Christ, Through an angel to John, okay? They are being dictated, meaning this is not just John's words that he's writing, these are the words of Jesus that are being written down. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter? It's because, all right, it doesn't make any other part of Scripture less inspired, but it does add more urgency and weight to what we are reading at the moment. So what I should say is that these discourses that are being laid out for the seven churches, we should be very focused on the intent of these passages, okay? And so the commendations we should take seriously. The critiques we should take very seriously. These are urgent matters, and so urgent that these churches are liable to lose their lampstands, liable to lose their place as a Christian church if they do not repent of these criticisms, so he begins the passage by commending the church, and so I want to paraphrase. Basically, he commends them on being theologically rigorous, doing what is right and biblical, even when there is much pressure from false apostles or teachers who proclaim a different gospel. They were they were very very, um, they were very concerned and active in casting out any unorthodox teaching. They were very careful about that. They did not want anything, any teaching that was unbiblical to enter the doors of the church. And Christ commends them on that. There is one gospel. There are not multiple gospels. They have been diligent in being doctrinally faithful to Scripture. In fact, it says this in Revelations 2.6. It says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we don't know much about those guys, and they men- get mentioned again here in a couple uh, verses. But we can assume that their lives and morals were deficient when measured by Scripture. Maybe they were, maybe they were sexually immoral. Maybe they had multiple wives, multiple husbands. Well, m- most likely multiple wives. But I mean, lots of things like that could have been the case. All right, we don't know exactly who they were, but in any case, the Ephesians despised the affront that they posed to biblical teaching. Now, here's the application of this. What does this matter to us? It's this, okay? This commendation, how does it fit us? I am always a little unnerved when a Christian suggests, now listen very carefully here, that they really don't care about theology and doctrine that bothers me. In fact, it bothers me a lot. I was talking to Crystal on the, on the way here this morning, and I sort of had a comparison, is that there have been times in my ministry over the last 20 years where I will suggest or I will recommend some sort of book. It might have been a devotional or it might have been a, a, some sort of deeper theology book, and the individual says, well, I don't really read. And I was like, well, do you not wash your hands too? I mean, seriously, it's it's in the same boat for me, right? I don't read. I don't wash my hands, okay? They're in the same boat, okay? My point is this, okay, (laughs) is that theology matters. Doctrine matters. They may say something like this. I don't care much for studying about theology. I just want to love Jesus. Have you all ever heard that? I don't care about theology. I just want to love Jesus. And that sounds really great. It sounds very humble. It sounds very biblical, but it's not. Do we want to love Jesus? Absolutely we want to love Jesus. We absolutely want Jesus, love, love Jesus. But in order to love Jesus appropriately, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know the biblical Jesus. It actually demonstrates a deep-seated immaturity. Theology, here's another thing, theology, doctrine, is not just for pastors. It's not. In fact, I would argue to you that theology and doctrine is less for pastors and more for the church. It is not just my job to protect the congregation from false teaching. It is your job as well to protect the church from false teaching. From false teaching that might come from this pulpit. If you hear or you believe that me or someone else is teaching or proclaiming a false doctrine, a false gospel, it is your duty to put a stop to that. How often have churches allowed someone teaching falsehoods go for years teaching those falsehoods? And one of two things happens. The church crumbles or they cease to becoming a church. They're no longer a church. It is amazing how many individuals gather on a Sunday morning and call themselves a church, but they are no longer a church. They're not. They're just a group of people that gather around on Sunday mornings, but there is no light of Christ in that congregation anymore. There's just not. theology should not be relegated to side conversations, small groups, or the classrooms as if it's not pivotal for Christian growth and maturity. Whenever we make a claim about God, either publicly or to ourselves, we are doing theology. If you say to me, I don't do theology, I don't like theology, I don't study theology, I believe, and as soon as you say that, you are doing theology. You are making a claim on your theological worldview. Immediately, and because of this, because it's, it's, theology is so important, it's important that we get it right. When Jesus set his disciples down on the side of the hill in Matthew chapters 5 and 7, 5 through 7, he wasn't just shooting the breeze. He didn't just gather them together and say, hey, let me give you some advice. That's not what he's doing. We're reading that right now on our Wednesday nights. He was doing theology, deep theology, with 12 fishermen. Well, a bunch of fishermen and some other guys. Okay, he was doing theology. There is a time and a place for devotionals and the application of God's word. There is. But there is also a time for the deep things of God, the difficult things of God. I have heard some people say that theology is just too difficult and it takes too much time to figure out. But in reality, we always make time for the things that are important to us, even when they are difficult. It's not that theology is too hard. It's just not important enough to us. So we choose not to do it. I don't read the Bible because I just don't understand it. Then figure it out. Read it more. Talk to people. You know, when I need to figure something out, the other day I changed the oil on my lawnmower. Folks, I wanted people to throw a party for me afterwards. You do not understand the gravity of that moment when that oil was changed and when my 17-year-old son got on the mower and it didn't blow up. Yes, he tested it. It was a big deal because I don't do that. Sue was telling me this morning that her car needed six, or maybe it was Donna, six spark plugs. I don't even know what a spark plug is. But here's the thing, all right? Here's the thing. If it was important enough for me to change the oil in my mower, what am I going to do? I'm going to figure it out. How much more important is God's Word, is the theology of the church? Now, I joke about the not reading. I get that. I I don't like to read, you know, those types of things. I joke about that, all right? I love to read. I read everything from systematic theology books to Batman, all right? And I'm really stuck on Batman right now, okay? And I, I do that, okay? I love to read. But there's more than just... You can listen... There's all these wonderful technologies out there that we can just engross ourselves in. As you're driving to work, as you're sitting there in your quiet time, listen to theology, whatever it might be. We need to do this. Here's the thing: this commendation of the church, I don't find this to be a common commendation amongst. Them. I don't find Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, Ephesus's focus on theology to be the focus of many Christians. I believe we're not. I don't believe that most Christians are in danger of doing too much theology. I believe Christians are in danger of doing too little. We have far too many people that have been in the church far too long that are raising children, raising grandchildren, raising great grandchildren that really don't know the gospel. They believe they know the gospel, they believe they know biblical truth, but they don't. It is absolutely true. That there are individuals who have been in church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years sitting under the same pastor, the same teachers. And then all of a sudden somebody else comes in and it's like a light goes off. I've been in church for 40 years and I've never heard the real gospel until now. I've seen it happen. Because all that time, everything had been made about them. And now somebody comes in and says, It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And this is why theology is important. This is why people don't love theology, because theology is not about you. It's not about them. It's about God. It's much easier to read a devotional written by somebody saying, Live your best life now. And they say it with a smile. Why? Because it's an encouragement, it's uplifting. It just makes you want to go, go, go. But when we read about the sin of man, how depraved we are and how much we are in need of Christ, well, that doesn't get us in the mood to, to dance. That doesn't get us to you know dance like Kevin Bacon in the 80s. Footloose, okay? But we need that. And we need both. We need encouragement, but we also need to be put in our place. Knowing and protecting right doctrine was important enough for Christ to commend it to Ephesus for their commitment. However, doctrine and theology without love can result in and have a dangerous result. So what were the warnings to the church? He says this. After the commendation, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come, listen, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you do not repent, you will cease to be a church. It can happen. It has happened. It has happened. There will be no, it is a, folks, there are churches that would have, congregations that would need to be in a stadium. These groups of people that would need to be in a stadium. All the techno things, fireworks and smoke coming on stage when the pastor goes out. And the light of Christ is absent. I take this to mean that in their zeal to be doctrinally right, they fail to be loving with, to, to God and a neighbor. They forgot the purpose of theology. Now hear this. Theology is not just about knowing biblical truths. Its primary purpose is to stir our affections for God and for our neighbor. That's the point. If you are reading and studying God's Word and theology, and it doesn't cause you to be more loving to God, to stir your affections for God and to stir your affections for your neighbor, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Theology is meant to stir your affections for God as we become, as we know God more, as we understand Christ more, as we are conforming to Christ. So be careful about that. Don't just read theology just to be right, okay? And folks, I'm just going to tell you, I I could fall into that camp real quickly, okay? Because I'm a nerd, all right. I like to know information. Okay, I like to know all kinds of stuff, all right? And I'm just gonna admit, I like to be right. Now that sounds real arrogant, okay? But who walks around saying, oh, I like to be wrong all the time? Nobody, right? Everybody wants to be right. And you want to understand these things and know these things. But I like to be correcting these things. But it is easy for me to miss the forest for the trees, because I'm so concerned on being right in a particular area, I forget that person just needs to be loved. They do not need to understand penal substitution at this moment. They just need to be loved. That's what they need right now. And we can miss that sometimes. What good is it to know doctrine inside Inside out, if it doesn't cause us to love God more. Does your theology stir your affections for Jesus? Does your doctrine lead you to love your neighbor more? We should always check your, check ourselves. When it comes to reading Scripture and studying theology, we should ask ourselves this, am I trying to win an argument or stand out amongst my Christian brethren, or am I just trying to know Jesus more? That We should ask ourselves. Remember, the husband In that original illustration, why why did he become cold and distant? It's because he wanted to be seen as the perfect husband, even though he became cold to his family. We have to guard ourselves from that. Our intent can be measured in part by how we speak and serve one another. If we have a habit of talking down or dismissing those who have less education or knowledge than us, it's likely that we are prioritizing theology over love of neighbor. You, might, you may have experienced this. Individuals who just seem to have this air about them that they want to just talk down to people. They, 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 it's almost like putting them... They, not only do they believe that they are the smartest person in the room, they want you to believe that they are the smartest person in the room. It's a very dangerous place for people to be. <laughs> One of the strangest compliments that I ever got in a Sunday school class, was when a friend of mine, he was an, was an older guy in the class, uh, he says, he looks at me, and he says, you, you're a professor? I said, yeah. You don't sound like one. I was like, I didn't know if that was a compliment or a, or a slam or an insult. I didn't know, but I understood what he meant, is that at least in that moment, in that moment, I wasn't talking down. I wasn't, I was just part of the group, right? Now that sounds like I'm like that, oh, he's got that down. I do not. There are certainly times in my life, I'm just gonna be very honest with you, that I like to put people in their place. I even told Crystal walking, I was like, I'd like to get them in a discussion and just let them know where it's at. Because sometimes it's fun. And that's not Christian. I understand that, okay? I understand that, but we need to guard ourselves against that, especially when it comes to our Christian brothers and sisters. We need to make sure that they, we, we don't invite people in by being high and mighty and putting people in their place. We invite them in, all right? This really Christian mature individual with this new Christian, we invite them in by bringing them up to our, by, by meeting them, right? By meeting them. If we find ourselves so invested in in study and theological debates, but fail to meet the needs of the most vulnerable, we're likely missing the boat. We might discover that while we are reading, studying, and learning mounds of theological information, that our prayer life and our worship life are stale. I've noticed that at times. I've noticed that, man, I'm doing a lot of reading about God, but I have failed to worship God. I have failed to serve God. I have failed to serve my neighbor. I know all this theological stuff, and it hasn't improved my relationship with Christ one bit. That's happened in my life, and I have to stop myself. It does not matter if I know Greek or Hebrew or some other, like Klingon. Does not ma- That's Star Trek, okay? It does not matter if I know that stuff if I fail to love my church, my family, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they had gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him to, it's always a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Theology and doctrine are means to an end of loving God and neighbor. They are not an end in and of themselves. That's important to remember. Theology and doctrine's goal is to love God and love neighbor. They are not the end all of, of themselves. If you are a secular, uh, unbelieving professor of theology, sure, theology and doctrine are an ends in and of themselves. But if you are a Christian following Christ, they are just a means to loving God more, to loving your neighbor more. Failure in this truth is disastrous. The lampstand that we have can be removed. So let's talk about the reward as we close. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is the paradise of God. The tree of life is symbolic for eternal life. In this case, or in any other, repentance does not lead to a consolation prize that leads to Jesus. Remember that. Repentance is not just some sort of bonus prize over here. It is the main prize. It is Christ. We want to be like Christ. We want to love like Christ. We want to serve like Christ. And we want to know Christ. So how do we protect ourselves from falling into the same predicament as Ephesus. So here are the three ways. First off, we dare not overcompensate. Now, what do I mean? We dare not overcompensate by not worrying about theology at all. That's the wrong place for us, okay? Now, like I said, I don't believe most of us are in danger of this. I think most of us are in danger. Many of us are in danger. And When I say that, I mean the church as a whole, okay? I don't believe the church as a whole is in danger of overcompensating on theology. I think far too many of us just don't care about it. They just don't. They don't care about theology. They want to come to church. They want to hear a good sermon. They want to sing some songs. They, they want to pray. They want to you know, give to the poor, you know that sort of thing, and they want to live their lives, but they don't really care about theology. Okay? So we don't want to overcompensate and go that far. Well, I'm just going to stop reading all this theology. I'm going to stop studying my Bible. I'm just going to love God and love neighbor. If I could be honest, I just don't think that that's where most Christians fail. At the very least, every Christian, beginning with the youngest of us, should understand the gospel and be able to defend it to the world. So you may say, I don't know where to start with theology. There's just too much, and I agree, it's too much. Go up to my library upstairs. There's a lot of Amazon there, okay? A lot. And there's more coming, don't tell Crystal. Anyway, there's a lot. There's just too much. For one lifetime, but if you had to start somewhere, make sure you know the gospel. Know the gospel inside and out. Start there. Most people's like, "Well, I'm going to start at the beginning of the book. I'm going to start at Genesis. It's the beginning of the book." No, start at the gospel. Know it inside and out. Know it when. You... Be talking about it in your sleep. Because what I have discerned, what I've discovered, is that if you study the gospel it branches out into every other facet of life and every other facet of theology. Start with the gospel. Be able to defend it. We need to know that we are sinners. We need to know the love of Christ. The love of God compels Christ to come to the cross to bear our sin on His behalf on the cross, die for our sin, and then rise on the third day. We need to know that outside of Christ, we stand condemned. It's likely that we need to invest more time in studying Scripture and theology and less time on Netflix, Facebook, or Entertainment Choices. Anybody says I don't have time to study study uh, study theology? Let's look at your Netflix account. You can look at mine. I guarantee you I would be ashamed. Not of what I'm watching, okay? But how much? I like to binge watch certain things. Binge watch, all right? I just do. Right now we're watching The Closer. Anyway, secondly... We need to be actively pursuing our love for God and love for neighbor. Now how do you do this? Okay? You need to actively how do you love your spouse more? It doesn't just happen. You actively pursue it. You make it intentional. I'm going to intentionally love my wife more. I'm going to be more affectionate. I'm going to be more compassionate. I'm going to care more about her needs. I'm going to where where she has where, where, she, where she has criticisms of me, I'm going to try to fix those all right, the best that I can. I'm never going to be perfect, but I'm going to do my best to love her more. We prioritize prayer, we prioritize worship, and we prioritize quiet time in God's Word. We pursue God. In addition, we actively pursue discipleship and fellowship opportunities with the church. We actively pursue service of one another. Find ways to help and involve yourself in in the spiritual growth of others. That's how you can make sure that we're not falling in the pit, that we haven't forgotten our first love, that we stay active with the church doing what God calls us. And third, and this is important, if you slip, if you fail, so if you find yourself right now that you are out of step with the Lord, I'm not reading my Bible, I'm not praying, I'm not serving, and I'm certainly not studying. I'm not reading the the deep things of God. I'm, I'm not doing those things. If you find yourself in that place, the kindness of God has provided opportunities for repentance. He doesn't tell Ephesus, I have this against you, and lo and behold... You stand condemned forever. There is no repentance for you. No, he says, repent. He says, remember your first love. And so I'm telling you this morning, if you are failing in these areas, then just repent. It's not embarrassing. We all are in need of repentance. Just say, Lord, help me love your word more. Help me love to serve more. Help me to love to know about your word more. God has placed these individuals in our lives, in our collective lives, that are able to understand and discern Scripture in a specific way. They know languages, they know all these things, and they do it for the edification of the body of Christ. Folks, they're not getting rich off these, okay? None of these Christian authors, mind you, a couple, are becoming, you know, the Stephen King of Christian. That's a weird, anyway. You get the idea. They're not millionaires but they're doing it out of the love for the body of Christ. Utilize them. None of us like, and and here's another thing, ask your Christian friends and family to provide you feedback. If you want to know where you're falling short, this is dangerous, but ask your neighbor, ask your spouse, ask a close friend, ask somebody in the church, am I failing here? Am I too much of a bully? That's something, I, I have asked it kind of like that way to, my, to Crystal. Am I being a bully? Am I too stuck on making sure that they know theology, but I'm not loving them well? Ask somebody, or you can ask somebody, does it appear that I just don't care about theology enough, doctrine enough? Do I need to know more? And let me tell you, let me, just as an aside, If you you find yourself in that boat where you haven't really cared about theology or you didn't even know where to go to, talk to me. My wife would love to make room in our Bible study area for her books. I've got lots of literature about that. We can talk about that. There's tons of resources, and I can point you in that way. All right? But more importantly than just a bunch of books written by men, read God's Word. Just sit down and read God's Word. Pray over it. And by the grace of God, we will conquer and feast off the tree of life all the way through eternity. This is not something to just forget. We need to remember these things. My hope for you, my hope for you this morning, all right, is that the Lord will use these letters to stir in your heart an appreciation of for knowing Him more, knowing the church more, and knowing about Him more. That, that's, that's my hope, All right, so especially starting with this morning, that you will want to go home and you will want to say, you know what, I want to know God more. I want to know God more. I want to know about God more. I want to know what other people have said about God more. I want to know that. But then I also want to use that not to be able to answer questions for jeopardy, Christian jeopardy, but so that I can then go and I can share it with others. I can just share it with others. That I can, I can talk about it. I can talk about the love of Christ. And then I can serve one another. That it will just stir my affections for Christ and my neighbor. That's what I hope by all of this. My desire for you all to know more about doctrine and theology and all these things is not, to be, not for you all to become these like heady, stuffy Christians. It's so that you'll be stirred up for good works for the sake of Christ so let's do that. Let's do that. It doesn't cost anything except for time and and Amazon. I get it. Okay. (laughs) But it's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. It is worth every bit of it. Subtract just a little bit from your Netflix time. Subtract just a little bit from your Facebook time. Start there. Start there. Okay. If If you typically watch two or three closers, just watch one. Use the rest of the time for reading for studying. Listen to a sermon. Listen to this again. We put it on podcast every Sunday or Monday. It's up there. Read, listen to it again. Listen to John Piper. Listen to Mark Dever. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Well, read Charles Spurgeon. All right, he's dead. You're not going to be able to listen to him, but you get the idea. Tons of resources. And by the grace of God, you will find yourself in a very, very good place. Let's pray.